good to be with you this morning. I have missed you. Uh, I haven't been in the service for two weeks. You know, two weeks ago I was in an extended session, which let me tell you, is the bomb. Love it. I'm not joking. Uh, It's so much fun. It is so much fun. So if you're not doing an extended session, you really should. You're missing out. Um, and then last week we were on vacation and uh, went and visited my sister in North Carolina and uh, spent uh, time with them and went to their, their church. And, and let me just say this, um, you know, they, they, they go to a, a rather larger church and you, know, you walk in and it's, wow, man, it's, this is so big. Look at all, these, look at all this nice stuff around. And uh, I remember just thinking, I miss my church. I love the people here, and honestly, you can't, there's not enough money in the world to pay for what we have, what we have together as a church body. You can't, there's not, there's not a price tag on that, and so I just want y'all to know, I I love y'all, and I love, I I love being your pastor, and so, and I've missed y'all. Well, we uh, begin a new series in in Mark, and so if you would, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. And we'll be just looking at the first eight verses in Mark chapter 1. And once you find your place there in Mark chapter 1, if you would, stand for the reading of God's Word. I love how people, I don't even have to say stand for the reading of God's Word, and people all like beat me to it standing up. I love that. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, says this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, it is so good to be with your people, the people that you have given your spirit to, God, and we come to you this morning ready to hear from your word, God, to hear and to respond, God, in faith and in worship and singing and in obedience, God. Lord, I pray this morning that we would see Jesus Christ more greater and more exalted than when we came in this morning, that our affections would be raised for him, that we would love him more from what we hear from your word, that, God, we would have such a humble estate before him knowing he is so glorious, so much worthier than I that I can't, even, I can't even touch his feet. That's how glorious he is. And that, God, we would come with a sense of thankfulness to your word, knowing that there are millions around the world who do not have your word in their hands, God, who have not seen your word. But, God, we have it here in front of us. It's been translated into our own language. And so, God, I pray and thank you for that, God. And I pray that we would give it the due attention it deserves because it is your very word. And that, God, it is what gives us sustenance and life in 
this life. Man does not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from your mouth, O God. So Lord, right now, we have many things vying for our attention. But God, you and your word deserve our utmost attention right now. So let us focus in. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I love how maybe stories or movies begin. If you're a big Star Wars fan, anybody a Star Wars fan in here? So, yeah, you know how Star Wars begins? In a what? In a galaxy far, far away, right? And you just know, you hear that line, you know, man, we're about to see a Star, Star Wars movie, right? In a galaxy far, far away, right? In a long time ago, right? That's how usually good stories start or good movies start, kind of sets the scene and trajectory of things. And we get a similar start here in the Gospel of Mark. This is the first sermon of the series, and I'm not even going to tell you how long it's going to last, right? And so it's the first sermon in a long sermon series, right? And it begins with a very good and very clear opening line about what this is about. It begins like this, the beginning and anybody ever, you know, maybe you're familiar with those two words, the beginning. Where have you else, where, where else have you heard those two words? Genesis 1-1. You know that it's the start of something new. Something is changing. Something is happening that has never happened before, right? And this is what we're going to see is that there is a start of something new here in the Gospel of Mark, is that we are going to be introduced to the person of Jesus Christ and to hear and see his biography and so what we're going to look at this morning, just in these eight verses, just kind of in this prologue here, uh, we're going to see that Jesus is the Christ who has arrived to bring forgiveness of sins and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That Jesus Christ has come on the scene and he's bringing and has brought forgiveness of sins and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so this morning, we're going to look at two questions together, two, not questions, but two statements, I guess. Is the one is in the first two verses, we're going to look at the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the second, we're going to look at the ministry of John the Baptist. And let's look at this first point, just in the first two verses, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. We learn, what is the beginning of? What, we hear the first two words, the beginning. What's the beginning of, right? It's the beginning of of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's what the next 16 chapters will be about. It's under this banner, gospel. And we hear this word a lot, right? Gospel, gospels, right? The word gospel can often be misused and misunderstood. It reminds me of uh, a movie that I'm sure is all your favorites, The Princess Bride, right? Uh, Anigo Montoya, right? Anybody know that line? You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. That's a pretty good impression. <laughs> One of my best I've done up here. Inigo Montoya. And I think that's pretty, pretty um, I, I would say, an accurate portrait when we hear gospel, is that it can be often misunderstood or misused, not actually meaning what you think it means, right? And so, but th it's the beginning of something right here. The word gospel occurs even in the Old Testament, many times expressing God's reign and rule and authority and salvation and victory over his enemies. 
It's the proclamation of good news for God's people, that God reigns. Isaiah 52, 7 says this, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, or the gospel, who publishes peace, who brings good news, gospel of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. That's the good news, right? That God reigns and that God is going to reign through his Messiah, that being Jesus Christ. And so Mark wants to be very clear here, even at the beginning of this gospel, of what this gospel is about, what's its content, what's its subject matter, so that nobody is confused, nobody misunderstands, and nobody misuses it, right? Is that Mark 1.1 indicates that the subject matter of the gospel is Jesus Christ. That's the content, that's the focal point, that's what it is about. So if you hear the gospel at all in your daily lives and your communications and things like that, if it doesn't have Jesus at the center, then it's what? It's not what? The gospel. It's not the gospel. The gospel is about Jesus. And so here in Mark 1.1, the word gospel refers to what we're going to get the rest of the chapters. It's the good news about the life and ministry, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything that follows in the next 16 chapters is about Jesus. And that this gospel tells us two things about Jesus, about who he is. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus, Christ. Christ is not his last name, right? Christ is a title. Christos, the anointed one, what we find in the Old Testament. One who has been set aside, set apart to reign and rule, as Psalm 2 says is that he is the long-awaited Messiah. This is what Christ means. And so when they hear, people hear in Mark's day, hey, this Jesus born in Nazareth, he's the Christ. He's the one that you have been looking forward to. He's the one that the whole Old Testament spoke about. It is him who has appeared. He's on the scene here. That's what it means to call Jesus the Christ. And not only is the Christ, but we learn a second thing about him. He is the Son of God. He's the Son of God. It's a title of deity and divinity. Now, I was in a conversation with some Jehovah Witnesses a few, few weeks back. And, um, and they, they, they come to me, you know, and, 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 you know, I'm salivating in my mouth a little bit. Because so, I love having these kind of discussions. And, uh, and so uh, they, they get to discussing with me, and they keep using that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, yeah, He's the Son of God. Yeah, He's the Son of God. And I wanted to Inigo Montoya them right there. You know, I don't think you think it, what it means. I don't think you know what it means. And they kept using it as a title of familial. Like, yeah, He's, he's just God's Son. That's all He is. It's a family title, right? It's all about the title of relationship, and that's all. But that's not all. And that's where I think Jehovah Witnesses get it wrong. And that's where they depart and say, he's just God's son, but he's not God himself. And the title son of God is a title of deity and divinity in the Gospels. It's not just a title of familiar relationship with the Father. It is a title of saying, no, Jesus Christ is not just any other man. He's not just the Son. He is the Son of God, meaning he has the character and nature of God himself. In him the fullness of deity is pleased to dwell, as Colossians 1 says. So Jesus is not just 
a son. He's the son of God. And he can say things like in John's gospel, I and the Father are one. The fullness of God dwells in Jesus Christ bodily. So he is not just a son of familiar status. He is God. Right? And it goes on to say this, is that this gospel is not new, innovative, creative, surprising maybe, some would say. It's been foretold, right? And this is why Mark goes on to say in verse 2, as it was written in the prophet Isaiah. So everything that I just said, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, this is not new news. This is not created by Mark. This is not invented by the apostles. This has been long foretold, this gospel, this good news. God has ordained it from eternity past. He set it in motion before creation. That's why Hebrews 1.1 can say, long ago and many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through who? The prophets. But He has spoken in these last days in His Son, Jesus Christ. And so the Old Testament told us and said there is one coming who is going to bring salvation to God's people, who is going to redeem them and restore them from slavery to sin, who is going to suffer and die on the cross and be resurrected from the dead. So everything that we're going to see in Mark's gospel is not new, is not innovative, is not created. It has been long foretold and set in motion by God himself, orchestrated from the very beginning. God has ordained this. And so one point of application I want to give us this morning as we just read these first two verses is this. Let's not make the gospel about anything else other than Jesus. The gospel is not about your church attendance. The gospel is not about your moral behavior. The gospel is not about your conservative values. The gospel is not even about you. The gospel is about Jesus. It's about who he is. It's about what he has done to save sinners from death, hell, sin, and the grave. He is the focal point. He is the center of it all. The gospel is about the long-awaited God, Savior, and King who has come to bring salvation. And so, Christian, any time that we start talking about the gospel and it sounds a lot like I, 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 me, 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 then who is at the center of that gospel? It's not Jesus. And church family, when you are presented with something by someone, maybe like Jehovah Witnesses, we need to be able to recognize that that's not the gospel. We don't need to give in to cults or people who present something different. Paul has a word about that in Galatians 1.7. He says, not that there is another one, particularly the gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Jesus Christ. Church family, let me, let me warn you of this. There are people in this world who claim the name of Christ and yet distort the gospel. And we should be very aware and careful of, of taking any of that in. Just like I said with the Jehovah Witness, yeah, He's the Son of God. That's right. Right? But they have a different dictionary for that, right? Of what that actually means. And so the way in which we guard ourselves from distortions, from false teaching, from error, is by knowing 
what the gospel is actually all about. And it's about Jesus and what he says about himself. So church family, I hope from this study, from the gospel of Mark, we can see who Jesus Christ really and truly is. And it will make us more aware of distortions of that. And it will also cause us to say, when we do share the gospel, when we do tell other people about Jesus, it would truly be all about Jesus and not about ourselves. Exalting Him above all things. The ministry of Jesus, though, in His life and His death and resurrection is preceded by the ministry of another, just as it was foretold. We are introduced in these next couple of verses to the iconic, the eccentric, maybe the wild, one would say, John the Baptist. And this is point number two, the ministry of John the Baptist. You know, I kind of, I I, I love, um, you know, well, I don't love, but I I think it's interesting to look back kind of in, in an old England days and uh, you know, you remember that guy who would stand at the doorway, the master of ceremonies. We have a different kind of idea of masters of ceremonies now, but, uh, but the master of ceremonies back in old times, and, and, you know, they would introduce people, right, when they came through the door. Lord West McKay and his fair maiden Moira. You know that kind of, that, that guy? Y'all know who I'm talking about, right? Okay, good. I don't want to be up here just pretending like I, y'all know who. But yeah, a master of ceremonies would introduce people so they didn't have to walk in and think like, do I know anybody here? Do they know me? They're going to know your name when you walk through because the master of ceremonies is going to declare it to everybody. They're all going to know who you are. They're all going to know where you're from. They're all going to know who you're married to, things like that. It's preparing the people for your entrance, right? And I would say this is that John the Baptist has a similar kind of role and function in the life of Jesus' ministry. He is kind of like a master of ceremonies. Jesus is coming, and he has arrived, and he is here. Repent and believe. He's operating and functioning like a master of ceremonies in a sense, getting the people ready for Jesus' entrance. And so I want to look at four different things, four different particular features and hallmarks of Uh, John the Baptist in his life and ministry. I want to look at the prediction of the messenger, the actions of the messenger, the response to the messenger, and the appearance of the messenger. Let's look at first this, is that the prediction of the messenger. Just like the gospel was predicted and foretold and arranged and orchestrated by God from the, the foundations of the world, is that God also indicated from old, that there would be someone who would come before him, before Jesus. There would be someone who would come and prepare the ground for Jesus's entrance. He would prepare the people for what is to come. And so John's ministry, even his birth, is by no coincidence, is by no surprise, right? Just like the arrival of Jesus the Messiah, John's arrival and ministry have been foretold and ordained long ago. Just listen to what it says in Luke chapter 1, 16 and 17. It says this, And he will turn, this is John the Baptist, many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. That was what was told to Elizabeth about her son who was in her womb. Long ago, God had established and set John the Baptist apart to prepare people for Christ the Messiah. And this is why Mark goes on to quote and says, look, all this was written long ago. 
He says, as it was written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face, which you might recognize that. That's from Exodus 23. Hey, look, we get out of Exodus, but do we really ever get out of Exodus? Do we really? So this is from Exodus 23, 20, when God tells Israel, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to lead you by the angel of the Lord out of Egypt, right? And then he goes on and he quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3, and he quotes Malachi, verse 3, 1, and says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Is that John the Baptist's ministry is ordained and has been set up by God long ago, right? And this is why Mark quotes and cites these verses. So God had set up John the Baptist's ministry long ago, the prediction of the messenger. Second thing is this, the actions of the messenger. Verse 4, what is John the Baptist doing? Well, the first thing is John was baptizing, which is interesting. Hey, we started our service off with baptizing, and now we're talking about it right here. Is that John the Baptist was baptizing people, immersing them in water, right? And we will find out later that John the Baptist has this ministry, and he actually baptizes Jesus Christ himself, right? So John is baptizing people, but he's also proclaiming something that leads people to want to get baptized. He's proclaiming, he's preaching. And what was the message that John the Baptist was proclaiming and preaching? He was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, let's just be really clear. This phrase, the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, has been misconstrued uh, throughout church history. Some have made whole doctrines out of this, that baptism actually saves you, that there is something supernatural about these waters in here. Like I said for Coop, that there is nothing special about this. We got this out of the Baton Rouge water. This is Baton Rouge water right here. Straight out of there. There's nothing special about that. Nothing supernatural about those waters. Those waters did not save Cooper this morning. Those waters and what happened this morning are a sign of the salvation that God already gave Coop. It's just an external sign. So John is not saving people by baptizing them. It's a symbol of the internal supernatural work that has happened. Baptism follows this internal change. And baptism is associated with repentance. Is that one repents of their sins and then follows in baptism. Repentance is the act of turning away from sin and turning to Jesus. Can you all say that with me? What is repentance? Turning away from and turning to it's, if I can use this analogy for a second, it's like divorce and remarriage. Is that divorce is separating yourself from a commitment that you have made and making a new commitment to somebody else. That's what's going on in repentance. Is that when we repent of our sin, we're divorcing ourselves from the world and the person that we did commit to, the world, and to sin and the flesh and the devil. And we're saying in repentance, no, I am now committing myself, pledging my allegiance to Jesus Christ. We have to divorce ourselves from the world and commit ourselves to Christ. That is what repentance is. 
and church family. I know many of you have come from maybe a Catholic background of some form and that you go to, uh, you go to make penance of some form. And this is what Martin Luther, his first 95 theses was all about, is that repentance is not a one-time act. We are living in daily repentance. We daily have to say, I'm divorcing myself from the things of this world, the love, the flesh, and the devil, and the things of this world. And I'm recommitting my life to Christ every day because the world is constantly trying to draw us back. Constantly. So this baptism is associated with repentance. And that baptism is a sign that your sins have been forgiven. We've already said this, but it's a symbol that a person has been forgiven of their sins through Christ and raised from the spiritual grave. Christ accomplishes this for us through His life and death and resurrection. He accomplishes the forgiveness of sins. Through repentance and faith in Jesus, we get to experience the benefits of Christ's work as the Son of God. Consider the magnitude of forgiveness of sins. We take that for granted and we pass over those words. Yes, we've been forgiven of our sins. But do you understand the magnitude of that? I was looking at this past week and this might be a politically hot topic and I'm not trying to get anybody's opinion on this. But just hear me out. The student loan debt right now is at $1.77 trillion. $1.77 trillion. That's impossible to even pay back. The government, as you may know, has done a student loan debt forgiveness program, and they're only able to forgive $116 million of that. Now, y'all do the math how much is left. There's a lot. Because no single person, no group of people, and not even a government can forgive that much. But let me tell you this. There is one, Christ Jesus, who 1.77 trillion sins is not even a drop in the bucket to what He forgives. That's the magnitude of what Jesus Christ has done. He has wiped the slate clean. As Colossians 2 says, He has canceled the record of debt that stood over against us, condemning us, church. The forgiveness of sins. Understand the magnitude of that. Everything that we have committed against others and ultimately against God has been forgiven. Wiped clean. You are no longer in debt. How amazing is that? Paul says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses, canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Colossians 2, 13-14. This is what Paul, this is what John is proclaiming. A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins of what Christ has done. Third thing is this, the response to the messenger. How are people responding to John the Baptist's message? Repent, believe. Are they saying, gosh, John, that's a little harsh. Well, heavy-handed, isn't it, John? Are you calling us to repent? Seriously? Man. 
How do you think John the Baptist would do today on a street corner out there? Ooh, man. He'd have a hard time probably. And he had a hard time in his own day too. Oh, that's harsh. That's not very kind. It's not very loving, John. Interestingly, but that's not how the people responded here. Look at how the people from all different corners of the earth responded to John the Baptist's proclamation. They were being baptized. They were repenting, confessing their sins. The message that he was proclaiming about Jesus Christ incites them to admit their wrongdoing, to confess their guilt, to confess their shame, to recognize their sin, to recognize their standing before God. This is what they're confessing. They're confessing their sins. I'm a sinner, and I'm in need of the salvation that you are proclaiming in Jesus Christ. And that is where it begins with salvation. Recognizing your wrongdoing. Recognizing your state before God. That we are not in a right state before God. That we need a mediator. We need someone who is righteous to come and take our place. Therefore, that means we need to confess that. I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And I have sinned so much. That is just not just for the unbeliever church, but actually we're called Christians to confess our sin as well. You're not in a state right now where you have been perfected. Anybody want to admit to that? Right? Is that we all constantly sin, and that means that we are constantly in need of confessing, confessing our sins. Confess your sins, First John says, and He is what? Faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all iniquity. That's written to the church. That's written to believers. I want to ask you right now, do you regularly acknowledge your sin before God? When you pray, do you regularly acknowledge and confess that, God, I have sinned against you today. I've acted in pride. I have lusted. I have spoken angrily to my children or to my wife or to a co-worker. I have, I have done this horrible thing. Do you confess your sins before God? Because I would say this, it should be a regular part of our Christian life and prayer life. And sometimes we need to confess our sins to one another. Maybe you've wronged somebody. Then you need to confess to them. I've wronged you and I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Because we're not in a state where we can say we have no more sin and we have not sinned. This is what John says. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and the word is not in us. Church, we still, we still sin. We're being sanctified. That means we still need to confess our sins to him and to one another. In the next verse, we're, talk, we're told about the response of the messenger, but we're also taught about the appearance of a messenger, the appearance of John. We're told about John's actions and the people's response, what he's proclaiming, but which seems to be important information, but then we're giving a, given additional information. Why are we told about his appearance? Just look at what it says about him. He was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate, and ate locusts and wild honey, right? Why are we told about his appearance and his diet? Why is that important information? Is it to inform us that he's living off the grid, right? Maybe he's, you know, kind of a Bear Grylls kind of S kind of guy. It's got, that's the vision in my mind, you know, that he's living off the land, that he's unlike any other. 
And I would say that there is a key to that. There is a sense of, hey, he's demonstrating that he is unlike any other person. That he is not, he's not like anybody you've ever seen. He is unique in, in a sense. Like it was foretold. His in, attire and his diet indicate that he's following a pattern of the Old Testament prophets. This is what you see in the Old Testament prophets. They're also kind of unique and different. Like Elijah himself, John is following in the pattern and the precedence of, of, John, of Elijah. The prophets were always calling for God's people to repent and to believe and to obey. And this is what John is doing right now. You know, when they're describing some messengers of the king, we're describing Elijah. And it says this in, first, in 2 Kings 1. He said, he said to them, what kind of man, this is the king speaking, what kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? And the king's messenger said this. They said, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And the king's like, oh, it's Elijah the Tishbite. Man, there's nobody else like him. Is that the king didn't even need to ask twice when they were like, yeah, he's wearing a camel's hair and a leather belt and stuff like that. They're like, Yep, I know who it is. It's Elijah. Crazy man. Right? And so his appearance, his attire, does set him apart in, in the pattern of the prophets of old. But what about his diet? What's the point of that? I'm going to pick on Miss Kim Smith for a second. You know, I, I, got, I love getting emails from y'all. Nice emails. <clears throat> I love getting emails. Uh, and I got this email from... Kim, because I said back in my Exodus sermon about locusts being a sign of judgment, and she asked a great question in this email. She said, you said in your sermon, locusts are a sign of judgment, but why is John the Baptist eating them in Mark chapter 1? And I said, I don't know. That's a great point. Maybe I need to preach on Mark. Uh, and so, so I had to do some digging and research of why, why are we told this information? We're not told a lot about, honestly, we're not told about anybody else's diet or wardrobe. But we are told about these things for John the Baptist. And this is what I, I just conclude on this, is that John's eating of locust and wild honey are a visual sign to the people to the onlookers of the judgment they will experience if they continue to reject Jesus, the Messiah. He's eating the things that in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, locusts are a bad thing in Revelation. They come to bring judgment. The locusts are a symbol of judgment in the Bible. And so he's eating it in front of them, almost like in a mocking sense. If, if you don't repent and believe, then you are going to experience judgment like Egypt did, like Israel did, if you don't repent and believe. It's a warning to them. If you don't turn, what was a symbol of judgment in the Old Testament will be a, is a symbol for you that you too will experience judgment. So he's forewarning them by his diet, by what he's eating in front of them. They ate wild honey in exile, what the prophet says. And so, I think for us, church, anytime we hear the word of God, we need to be forewarned, warned, is that when we hear the word of God, 
it is a serious matter to reject it and disobey it. And to walk away saying, we don't care about what Jesus has to say or do. And so be forewarned, disobedience, unrepentance, and unbelief will not go unpunished in the last day. Lastly, the proclamation of the messenger. What is he proclaiming? John's ministry is great. It's prophesied. It's necessary. Jesus even acknowledges the role and the importance of John the Baptist's ministry. He says there's, you know, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. So Jesus respects even John the Baptist's ministry. But John the Baptist's ministry is not greater than what Jesus is coming to do. You think that John the Baptist is great and what he's doing is great? Jesus and his ministry is better. It's kind of like saying the best steak is at Golden Corral, right? And I I see some of you go. And so if a person says the best steak is at Golden Corral, you're just kind of like, if you think that steak is great, wait till you taste Ruth Chris, right? Or wherever you get your steaks here. Wait till you taste that. If you think that's great, what? Wait till you see this. And the same thing is what we see. If we think John the Baptist is great and his ministry is great, he is only a preface to something that is greater, and he recognizes that. Something that is greater is here and coming. John recognizes the supremacy and the superiority of Jesus and his ministry. He recognizes that Jesus is worthy of all honor and glory. So much honor and glory, in fact, that he can't even untie or unstrap his sandals. And church, let me just say this. Does this not call us all to humility when we come before Christ? Is that we are proud when we compare ourselves to other people. Man, look how much better I'm doing than that person or that person or that person. But when you compare yourselves to Jesus Christ, you have nothing to be proud of. And that needs to be our inclination. Don't compare yourself to other people. Compare yourself to Jesus. Compare yourself to Him. If the most worthy person humbled himself then how could we possibly be prideful? Jesus humbled himself, took the form of a servant. He, interestingly, washed his disciples' feet. Consider John the Baptist saying, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. And yet that man stoops down and washes his disciples' feet. How could we say, I'm too good for that? Do you know who I am? How dare you? Treat me with the respect I deserve and the honor I'm due. When you compare yourselves to other people, you may look really great. I may look really great. But when you compare yourself to Jesus, we must all say, He is mightier than I and worthy of all glory and honor. So much so, I don't deserve to stoop down and untie His sandals. And what makes Jesus' ministry so much superior than John the Baptist? Baptism. That's what it is. John recognizes, look, I just come and baptize you with plain old water. That's what I'm doing. There's nothing special about the water that I baptize you with. But here's the difference. As I have come and baptized you with water, but he will come and baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And we've seen this language already in Acts so far. Is that Jesus comes and when he inaugurates his kingdom, he brings the Spirit. And he gives the Spirit to his people. This is what the new covenant promises are all about. 
is that he gives us a new heart and new spirit, what Ezekiel 36 says. He cleanses us from within. He gives us a new heart so that we're able to obey him. This is why Jesus, he and his ministry are better than John the Baptist, because he's able to do the inward change that we desperately need, that no water can cleanse you from. You can wash yourselves as much as you want, church body. You can use all the fads and the trends in this world to try and cleanse you from the guilt of sin and shame. Let me tell you this. There is no baptism that this world offers you that will cleanse you from sin. Only the baptism that Christ offers by the Spirit. This morning, you need forgiveness and you need the Spirit. And Jesus has come and offered you both of them this morning. You might be here and you might say, what do I do? I'm here and I need those things desperately. Well, why don't you follow what the text says? Confess your sins. Acknowledge your humble state before God that you are a sinner in need of grace and mercy and forgiveness. Repent, declare before God and before others. I'm divorcing myself from the things of this world and what I have followed and bowed down to, and I want to bow down to Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And then follow in baptism saying, I want to put on the jersey now. I want to follow Jesus. I want to be on his team and on no other team. This morning, you can have forgiveness of your sins. You can receive the Spirit of God that will enable you and help you obey if you repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you this morning for your word. And I pray that it would bring humility in all of us that we get to, we get to behold the Christ in the scriptures and revel in his beauty. And I pray that we would come humbly to him knowing that he is worthy of all honor and glory. Lord, help us by your spirit that is indwelling in us to be obedient to all that you have said. It's in Christ's name I pray these things. Amen.